0: Good morning, our scripture reading this morning is from Nehemiah 1, if you would turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 1, if you have the Pew Bible in front of you, that is on page 398. Again, that's Nehemiah 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6, and then verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 4, Then Nehemiah 1, 398 in the Pew Bible. Hear the words of the Lord. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Cheslev in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived in exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I, and my father's house, have sinned. Verse 11, please. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Please contemplate these words for a few moments.
1: What I have in in mind this morning is a little different than what we typically would do on a Sunday morning. And I have a couple of things that are driving this thought. First and primarily are these prayer cards. So these prayer cards, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, uh, are things that we have a, a prayer jar and a ceremony next Sunday here where you sign, you write stuff down this week, you bring them up, you seal them, you put them in a jar. We pray about those things For the year and then we send them back to you at the end of the year and so we'll be doing that so I'm trying to get you I'm trying to spur on your thinking especially in terms of how God would want you to move or or uh, react or live or change in the year 2015. So one of the things that you're going to need is something to write with and something to write on. So I'm going to ask the deacons back there to just come up. If you need a pen, just raise your hand. They'll get you a pen. And probably between the back of the bulletin and then the insert that you have, you probably have something that you can write on. So you're going to need to have that on your lap. And I want you to be able to take notes and just jot some things down. Uh, That the Lord might stir up in you as we go through this sermon in Nehemiah. And then you can transfer it to your prayer card or think about it, wrestle with it as we think about uh, 2015. The other thing that's um, driving part of this, and it's just providentially worked out this way, is uh, many of you know um, Liz Hunter member here at Christ Community Church, lovely young woman in her mid-fifties, and is going to pass away in the next day or two. And so she's been at hospice, and so um, I've been just dropping by for a few minutes and visiting with her family. And, of course, it's a very difficult, you know, that's a difficult moment. Um, But I thought a lot about uh, that moment when we were seeing the sands of time are sinking and so for her, you know, there's just a few grains left in the, in, the, in the sand jar. But for her, the dawn of heaven breaks, which is so great. That even though here, uh, her last day is going to be early in 2015, perhaps today, uh, the dawn of heaven is breaking for her. The, the summer morning that she's sighed for, that all of us are sighing for, uh, the, the sweet, fair morning is awakening. She's just at that last step. And though dark, dark had been the midnight, day spring is at hand, and she will soon dwell in the glory of Emmanuel's land. I mean that is a great hope, that is a great hope. But for us, we're here, and Lord willing, we're going to be here for 2015. And so my question for us is: before we reach to that last spot where we can't fill out a card and we can't move forward for ourselves or for God's kingdom, my question for us is driving this sermon is the same question that was asked to Nehemiah by the king: What are you requesting? Nehemiah, this slave, stands before this great king and the king opens up this great opportunity by saying this king who has all the power over Nehemiah and one of the most powerful people in the world at that time. He looks at this slave and he asks this very intriguing, very critical, very powerful question. What is it you are requesting? Now, if you're a believer here, you've come today, this morning, to worship, to, to, to make much of God, to give him glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And so we gather together on Sundays and we try to say, you know, the world's trying to make much of itself. Sometimes we're trying to make much of ourselves. But when we come in here, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make much of God. We're trying to give him the glory. And so when we gather here in some real sense, we're standing before the king of kings. And my question for you, my question for myself, if the king of kings looked at you this morning and said, what are you requesting for 2015? What would you say? The king who has all the power, who can do immeasurably more than we could possibly ask or imagine, who wants to bless his people, who's leaning forward to pour out his favor. If he says to you, what is it you're requesting for 2015, what would you say? So that's the question I want you to write at the top of your paper. That's the question I want to have you have help you as you think about what you're going to put down for the year 2015. What is it you're requesting? And my hope is this text from Nehemiah will help sort of stir some things up. We're not going to get to every area of your life or every area that you could possibly think of, but hopefully it stirs up and for the next Six days, you can wrestle with this, you can talk to your friends, your family, and you can write down what you think the answer should be for you for what are you requesting. I love the the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and I read through it every August. As I set my ministry goals for the year, which for me pretty much runs from September 1st to August. I sit uh, to, uh, by myself for a few days. I read back through this book. I read back through the last year's goals. And I look ahead and I ask the question, God, if you're asking me, what are you requesting? What, what is it that I want to see happen in this next year? And Nehemiah is especially accessible and encouraging to me. As a leader, because the book contains no overt miracles. No parting of the Red Sea, no fire falls from heaven in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is never visited by an angel. Nehemiah never heals anybody. Instead, Nehemiah is just a person with a passion. He's just a regular guy who has a passion, he has a sense of something that could and should be. And he has a sense that he, he's a person that's being called to make a difference in some way. So he has a passion. He prays. He plans. He takes risks. He works hard. He makes difficult decisions. He has to overcome significant obstacles. And he trusts in the Lord. I'm not saying that God isn't at work in the book of Nehemiah. But all the divine intervention is sort of behind the scenes. What you see with the book of Nehemiah is just a regular guy with a passion. And he has to work hard at trying to fulfill that, that vision. And so Nehemiah's story is, is accessible because his story is really not much different than most of ours. Just a brief background here. Because of the poor leadership and the disobedience of God's people, the Israelites who had moved. You remember, they've moved out of Egypt. They've wandered through the desert. They entered into it to Israel, the promised land. And as as soon as they enter in, they they begin forgetting about the Lord. And they have poor leadership. And after King Solomon's reign, the Israel splits into two, north and south. North is called Israel and south is called Judah. And in Israel, the northern kingdom, it's invaded by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So the Assyrians attack. They're coming down from the north. They attack Israel and uh, they just take, every, they take all the, the wise people, all the wealth out of Israel back to Assyria. About 150 years later in 586, essentially the same thing happens to Judah, the southern kingdom. And this time they come into Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is. They, they knock down the walls, they destroy the temple, they take all the artifacts out, they take everything of value, and they just leave the poor people behind in Jerusalem. And as would be the case for these invaders, they take what is good, both material and people, and they take them back and they make them, them slaves. So that's why you have the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of these people that's extracted out of Israel and becomes a slave for the northern, this, these, these northern kingdoms, Assyria and Babylonia. Same thing with Esther. Same thing with Nehemiah, same thing with Ezra. These are all people that were part of this deportation, and they say something about how God was working during that time, and we're specifically going to take a look at Nehemiah. The Jewish people remained in Babylon for about 70 years in captivity until finally a priest named Ezra And so if you look in your Bible, it's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These are all people that live near at the same time. Ezra comes back with a a group of exiles, and their specific task is to rebuild the temple. They come back to Jerusalem. The temple's been destroyed. All the artifacts have been taken out. And Ezra and a group of people come back, and they rebuild the temple. Not many years later... Nehemiah comes back with, the same, with another group of people, and his, his task is to rebuild the wall. He's, he's rebuilding this protective wall around the city, and the order is important. The temple and then the wall. we are supposed to notice that as the way the books of the Bible are arranged. First, the temple is built, then the wall. The temple is a way of saying, God, you're at the center. What had happened in our lives is we just disregarded God as the center. We decided we want to be the center of all things. We want to do things the way we want to do things. And God tried to bring prophet after prophet and say, you're just headed for disaster when you put yourself at the center. So please put me back at the center. And they didn't. And then they got deported. So they're coming back and they're reestablishing God as the center center by building the temple. First thing you have to do in repentance is get rid of the idols of your heart and reestablish God as the very center. That now the way you're going to live your life from this day forward is God at the center rather than yourself or something or someone else at the center. But the second step is then rebuilding these walls, these protective, uh, this protective strength around our lives so that when there's an enemy attack, there's something that slows down the enemy. It's very possible to have a life with God at the center, but you have no defense. So you really do love the Lord. You're really trying to keep him at the center, but you don't have any defense mechanisms. So when the enemy attacks and the enemy will attack, there's nothing to slow the enemy down. So you're constantly having this massive war on your soul right in the center because you don't have anything protective to slow the enemy's attack down. And perhaps you are a person that has God at the center, but you've failed or you, you've neglected to build up any defense to enemy attack. You lack consistency in worship or prayer. You, you lack knowledge of God's word you lack a spiritually strong person in your life who can look at you and you've given the freedom to say to you, hey, you know what, you're going in the wrong direction. You you don't have these things. You don't have a good buffer of prayer, a good buffer of worship, a good buffer of people, a good buffer of memorizing the Scripture so that when the enemy attacks, he doesn't just get right to your soul. And maybe you've neglected that Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. See, see maybe there's a hole in your spiritual defenses due to some lack of self-control. There's some Area you, you could probably name it right away. And the enemy always comes through the same broken down gate. And he gets right to your soul because you just don't have any self-control in that area. Probably most of you heard what happened in Shanghai on New Year's Eve. They're celebrating New Year's Eve just like you and I would have, or New York City, or anywhere else. And in Shanghai, there's a lot of people in the downtown area, hundreds of thousands, maybe. I don't know the number. But what happened is from the, what they think happened is from the top of a very large building, somebody spilled out coupons, and the coupons looked like dollars. And because the people couldn't exercise self-control, 36 people died that night. In stampede. You see, it's possible that your soul is getting stampeded because you don't have any self-control. Something just runs into your heart, into your soul and runs you over. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you don't really want God at the center, but you don't have any defense. You don't have any self-control. So the enemy just comes in and just plays havoc with your soul. And and you never really make much spiritual progress. You might say, well, you know, I I still have the Lord, but I can't say I've really grown in 2014. I, I can't make any traction because I have this hole that the enemy constantly runs me over. I have this hunger that when I feel this hunger, everything else, including God, takes a back seat until that hunger is satisfied. And then I promise myself, I'm not going to do it again. But the enemy knows that weakness. So our question is what are, what are you requesting? Maybe the first thing you need to say is, I, I, I need, I need, what am I requesting, God? I'm requesting that you get back in the center of my life. I've got something else at the center. And until that happens, I'm stuck. And maybe that's your request. Maybe it's your city, yourself. You look like this city whose walls are broken down. You lack self-control or spiritual discipline or spiritual friendship. And so when the enemy attacks, there's no slowing it down. And maybe your request is, is, God, I, I need to strengthen those walls. And what would that look like for you? What would you need to have in place for your soul in 2015? I want to turn our attention to Nehemiah now and quickly examine four character traits of Nehemiah, which might shape your answer to the question, what are you requesting? Very easy to remember. You can write them down as we go along. Passion, prayer, planning, and pain. Passion, prayer, planning, and pain. So again, you're trying to answer the question, what are you requesting? And somewhere, I hope the Lord's going to say, that's, that's what you need to be thinking about. Passion. Nehemiah is a slave in Babylon. He works directly for the king. His job is a cupbearer. And, and one day, some men had gone off to Jerusalem and come back, and they're giving a report. Here's what it's like for the people that got left in Jerusalem. Here's what the city looks like. And you see what uh, they say. And they said to him, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, The remnant, the people they got left behind, they're in the province who who, who survived the exile. They're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. See, the enemies just don't have anything to keep them from coming in. Even though they've got this rebuilt temple, the the people themselves are in great trouble. They're, They're in shame. Their, their lives are in shambles. And Nehemiah's response, as soon as he heard these words, verse 4, here's his passion. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and fasted and prayed before the Lord God of heaven. Every goal, every purpose, every vision begins with a passion. Passion. Every goal, every vision, every purpose begins with some kind of passion. Something gets stirred up in your heart, your mind and soul. You're dissatisfied. You see the current conditions of your life. You see the current conditions of your church, you see the current conditions of your business, of your school, of your community, and you're just just, just dissatisfied. I just can't stand this status quo anymore. This is the way these people have been living for at least 70 years, and somebody's got to do something. Somebody should come in. Somebody must come in and change the dynamic. And so this passion, this vision gets stirred up in Nehemiah. And this passion is is what catapults people out of passivity into action. As one writer put it, vision is a preferred future. Vision is a preferred future. I look at my life and I don't prefer the future that I see. So something has to change. I look at my church, I look at my community, whatever it is, and I prefer a different future and somebody, something has to happen or else we're going to be continuing to live with a status quo. Every parent understands and implements this strategy for their children, do you not? You look at your child and you prefer a certain future. So you work hard to see if you can mold that, and then at some point you just have to hand the future off to them. Christ Community Church, 13 years ago, started because there was a dissatisfaction about current conditions. There was a strong passion to say, we've got to have a kind of a church here that would just open the Bible and tell people what God says and how they can apply it to their lives and just try to live that way. We weren't saying no one was doing it, but we preferred that there's another church in here offering that in this town. And so a group of people had enough passion 13 years ago to say, we're willing to give. We're willing to do whatever it takes for to make that happen. So as you gather here this morning, if you could imagine yourself standing before the king of kings and he's looking at you and he's saying,
0: what are you requesting?
1: What stirring in your soul? You know it all the time, because when this happens, when you come across this situation, when you see yourself, whatever it is, something says something must change. Somebody must get involved in some way so that we're not here in 2016 like we are today. What kind of preferred future do you need to act on? Maybe you need to just start by saying, God, give me a passion. Everybody finds themselves at that point, some point in their life, they just have grown apathetic. I just don't have a passion. I don't feel strongly about anything. God, you need to stir something up in me so I can have a passion. So maybe that's where your starting point is. Maybe you already know what that passion is. And that's what you want to work towards in 2015. Second, prayer. Four months passes between this report and Nehemiah standing before the king. And so, this four month time, Nehemiah is praying and he's fasting. And God is doing something very important during this time. He's working on Nehemiah. He's working on his passion. And he's trying to work on him through prayer. And he's shaping Nehemiah, shaping the vision. And sometimes the vision gets shaped for four months. You have to pray and you have to fast and you have to think, you have to be shaped. For four months. That's not a long time. How long was the prayer and the fasting for Moses? Forty years. You remember he tried to take things into his own hands. I don't like what's happening. I don't prefer the future that's happening. So I'm just going to start putting to death the Egyptian soldiers on my own. And God says, "Say we can't do it underneath your power, Moses. It's only going to happen underneath my power. It's going to take you 40 years to calm down. Now, I hope it's not 40 years for you. I'm just saying it may not be right away. You might have a passion. And you might think this is it. And tomorrow you've got to act on it. And it may be prayer and fasting needs to happen. might need to happen for four months before anything really launches. might be longer. Well, he prays and he's got these three little highlights here. Verse five, I said, "O Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, and steadfast love with those who he loves and he keeps his commandments. First thing Nehemiah understands is that God is awesome and he is faithful. He Nehemiah understands that he may be a slave to this king, but he serves the king of kings. He understands that the main actor on the world stage is not Nehemiah. Nehemiah understands that the main actor on the world stage is not this king. The main actor on the world stage is the King of Kings. And the King of Kings is going to get his stuff done no matter if anybody intersects or not. God's got a plan. He's going to make that plan happen. What he would like is for people to join with him and be partners in that plan. And Nehemiah just sets it up in his prayer to first say, hey, let's just say you're the King of Kings. You're awesome. You're faithful. I'm not awesome. I'm not faithful. This king isn't awesome. He's not faithful. There's only one person. And my prayer needs to be shaped first to say, God, you're awesome. Second thing, Nehemiah is aware of himself. Please, Lord, verse 6, let your ear be attentive. Let your eyes be open. Hear this prayer. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleading because I've sinned against you. I'm confessing the sins of my people Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, even I in my father's house have sinned against you. Nehemiah is aware of God. He's aware of himself. He's taking ownership of the mistakes that he's made. He's confessing. He's trying to put God back at the center of his own life and then the life of his people. Finally, verse 11. And this is important. Oh, Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king. He's just about ready to enter into the king's presence. He's got his prayer. He's got his plan, which we'll talk about in in just a minute. And he's saying, God, I, I want you. I'm pleading for you to give success to me, to grant me mercy. And why this is so important is because Nehemiah doesn't pray for a miracle, God, you do something. He doesn't pray, God, could you rebuild the wall? No. Instead, Nehemiah prays for an opportunity to go and rebuild the wall himself. God, send me to do something. See, that's a big, big difference. And maybe a lot of your prayers are just, God, could you do something? God, there's an issue out here. Could you fix that issue? There's no temple. Could you rebuild the temple miraculously? There's no wall. Could you just do it? That's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah sees a problem and says, God, you're awesome. The only way it's only going to get done is if you do it. But would you send me and I can be a part of your plan? So one of my questions, what are you requesting? What do you think that God wants to see happen? And how can you step in and be a partner with him? Andy Stanley says this. Dreamers dream about things being different. Leaders envision themselves making a difference. Have you ever run into just a person who's really just a dreamer? They're, they're awesome dreams, but you know, you know what? That's not going to happen. Why? Because it's just a dream. It's just a wish. They're not really committed to saying, how can I get involved to make this happen? They just want it to somehow miraculously work out that my relationship with my spouse is better. Dreamers dream about things being different. Leaders envision themselves making a difference. Dreamers think about how nice it would be for something to be done. Leaders look for an opportunity to do something. So what are you requesting? What, what stirs your soul, produces prayer? What, what do you want to partner with God with? What kind of future do you prefer in your, in your own self? in your family, in this community, in this church. There's passion, there's prayer, there's third, there's planning. Finally, we reach the, the question. The, the king sees the downcast heart of Nehemiah. He says, well, what, what is it you want? What are you requesting? And we learn from the following verses, which we, which we won't read, verses chapter 2, 5 through 8, that Nehemiah hasn't just been praying, he's been planning. And the reason we know that is because in verse 5 he says, well, okay, since you ask, here's my vision. Nehemiah says, okay, guys, can we pull out the PowerPoint? Because i got the PowerPoint ready. Now that he's asked, let's bring up the PowerPoint. First, click, vision. i got a vision. King, i got a vision to rebuild this wall. I feel like God wants it to be done. I think it's something that should be done. And I've asked to enter into a partnership with him, and I have a vision to rebuild the wall. Okay, great. How, long, how much time is going to take? Next slide. Verse 6, here's how much time it's going to take. Well, what are you going to need? Hey, I'm glad you asked. Verse 7 and 8. King, this is what I need you to do for me. It's a great little exchange. I have a vision. I think I know how much time it's going to take. I know what kind of resources I'm going to need. And I'm going to have to step out in courage. And I'm going to have to ask this king. And you asking the king of kings. God, this is what I think is my vision. This is how much time I think it's going to take. And these are the resources. And you have to give them to me. I can't do them on my own. Nehemiah couldn't have just gotten the green light to go back to Jerusalem. He had to have the resources of the king in order for it to happen. So he has a plan. Every everybody who's done any kind of leadership training has heard this little proverb. You can you can you can end it for me. Failing to plan is planning to fail. Everybody's heard that. Nehemiah wasn't going to fail to have a plan. Now, when the plan gets implemented, it's all maneuvering happens. But he's got a plan. He's not just a person with a passion. He's not certain, just a person who's praying. He's a person who has a plan. This is what I think should happen. I've got a very specific plan. And so when the question comes, what are you requesting? He has his plan ready. And so, one of my questions to you. Maybe you know what your passion is. You have a vision. Maybe you're praying about it right now. But maybe you need a plan. Do, do you have a plan that executes your passion? Or do you just have a passion? That's a great place to start. But you've got to move on down the line. Do you have a plan that's going to execute that? If you're a dad, you have a family. Do you, you have a passion for your children? You have a preferred future for your family. And my question is, have you taken that passion and developed it into a plan? Finally, the, third, or the fourth and final point, pain. Don't you wish I could just skip this one? Let's just, you know, three-point sermons are better than four-point sermons any day. Undaunted, dogged determination. I want you to listen. God's vision for you. You being in the sweet spot of God's will Will include pain. God's vision for you. You being right dead center. Of what God wants you to do. Will include pain. It's worth reading through the next few chapters. Which we won't do. But you could do this week. And just circle all the conflict and pain. Nehemiah had to endure to fulfill his passion. It's just one after another, after another. every chapter, just another piece of pain in order to get this wall built. Let me highlight just a few. Chapter two, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and he inspects the walls. And after he inspects the walls, he gets all the people that are there, the remnant, because he's going to get them to help. Everybody's got to take a little piece of the wall. Hey, the Phillips family, you're going to build this part, and then we're going to put the Smiths over here, and then we're going to put the Johnsons over here. are going to get every family just to build a little piece of the wall. So he gets them all together, and he gives this an inspiring Mel Gibson Braveheart speech. He's on his, his horse. He's riding back and forth, and he's saying, you know, th- th- they, may, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. They'll never never take our wall down. I mean, I don't know what he said, but it was inspiring. Right after that inspiring speech, this is what the people said. Let us rise up and rebuild. What a great little tagline. I'm sure they had keychains or something, billboards, rise up and rebuild. It's it's the renewal plan for Jerusalem. It's a great tagline, but as soon as they break the huddle, a group of naysayers in the group, he'll never do it. They, don't, they, they can't make it happen. It's too big of a project. Nobody really wants it. See, as soon as he's gotten, gotten done with his inspiring speech, a group of naysayers come in and say, yeah, you're not going to be able to get that done. Chapter 4, the same negative group. Now it's just not a group of naysayers. They're a mob. Chapter 4, verse 1. They were greatly enraged. And they begin to shout at the people who are rebuilding the wall. You're never going to do it. You're a loser. Over and over and over again. Until the people come back to Nehemiah, the builders, and say, you know what, Nehemiah, they're right. We're not going to get it done. Just imagine how discouraging it could have been for Nehemiah. I've come all this way from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The wall's really in worse shape than I thought. I'm going to have to get people who really don't know how to build, build a piece of the wall. And as soon as I give my best speech, people are already saying it's not going to get done. And now just a a few days later, they're coming back angry. And now my own people are coming back to me saying, Nehemiah, you're not going to get it done. And we're not going to get it done either. What, What a moment of discouragement to just give up. But Nehemiah presses on in chapter 6. Finally, the mob is so enraged, they send someone to assassinate Nehemiah. God's vision for you, being in the sweet spot of God's will, will involve pain. Leadership writer Patrick Lencioni, he writes this. Listen carefully. If you were searching for leaders to change the world, what qualities would you look for? Courage, intelligence certainly would be prime candidates. Charisma might make the list. Yet as important as these characteristics may be, I would rank two others ahead of them, especially when I think about the Christian leader. Those two qualities I'm thinking of are humility and pain tolerance. When I graduated from college, I wanted to change the world. I had no specific idea about what kind of difference I wanted to make. And although that may not seem like a big deal, it masked a larger problem. I was more interested in being recognized for having changed the world than the change itself. Making a difference was not really about the world. After all, it was about me. Also, there was another problem. As much as I wanted to make a difference, I wasn't too keen on having to suffer much along the way. Sure, I can deal with some hard work, maybe a temporary financial setback, but the real suffering, embarrassment, rejection by loved ones, no thank you, I didn't want to make that big of a difference. Let's say that your passion is not for the community or the church, it's for yourself. God is saying you got a hole in your spiritual defenses and you can't move forward for the purposes of the kingdom of God until you, Paul, take care of this hole. And so you're working on one of what the church calls the seven deadly sins, anger, greed, laziness, pride, lust, envy, or gluttony. That's the hole in your wall. Real pain will have to be endured for you to wall that off. It's not going to happen without pain. Whether you're requesting prayer and work to be done in your own life, on your own walls or maybe in the community, there's always going to be some opposition, a voice. Might be a voice of a very important person of your life, a parent, a friend. It's going to whisper And say, Paul, you can't do it. You're going to make somebody angry. I mean, look how painful this is. God must not want you to do it because it's so painful. It won't last. What do other people think? You're not qualified. I wonder how many God-inspired visions got derailed Because of a lack of pain tolerance. You really had a passion. It was what God wanted to see happen. You move forward. But the pain just became too difficult. The voices became too heavy that you backed off. And really a dream that God wanted to see fulfilled. Is just left on the highway. I want to show a little video clip here. That maybe helps this. You understand uh, what I'm talking about? Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. You know, uh, you'll probably be about as good as I was. That's kind of the way it works, you know. And I, I, I was below average. You know, so, oh, so you'll probably ultimately rank somewhere around there, you know. So. Really, you'll excel at a lot of things, just not this. I don't want you out here shooting this ball around all day and night. All right?
0: All
1: right. All right, glare. Right, Never let somebody tell you you can't do something. Not even me. Alright? You got a dream. You got to protect it. People can't do something themselves. They want to tell you you can't do it. You want something? Go get it.
0: Period.
1: See, I wonder how many, how many visions you just have a voice that could be your dad, who might be dead now, that still just speaks into your life. Hey, you're nobody. You're not going to be able to get that done. I wonder how many of us have some kind of passion, some kind of vision to do something, but we just got discouraged and we packed up our ball and walked away. We never took another shot. If you can't endure some pain, you're not going to get very far. You can have a great passion. You can have a great prayer life and you can couple that with an excellent plan. But during the execution, if you cannot live through pain, you're not going to get very far. So my question is, we're coming back to the end here is, what are you requesting? You write that at the top of your prayer card. What do you want to see happen in 2015. As we move towards communion, let's celebrate that 400 years after Nehemiah, there was another man who had a passion. He saw people who were in great trouble and shame. He was a man of prayer, he was a man of a divine plan to rescue, and he endured pain. When people came in and mocked him, when his friends disowned him, when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, where have you gone? He stuck with the plan. To rescue sinners and people like me, people like you, And because he's done that, my prayer is that's going to be the motive, that's going to be the, the, the rock that you stand on. As you move out and try to do what it is God wants you to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you in this communion table. We remember the night you were betrayed by friend and enemy. That you said, I'm going to spill my blood so you don't have to. I'm going to give my body in place of yours. I'll be broken so you can be whole. Would you minister to your people here at this table? Those who have committed their lives to you that have said you're the center, would you, would you give them grace and courage and strength? Pain tolerance. Tolerance.